Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This podcast is focused primarily on governance and DAO-related discussions. We try to tailor the conversation around topics and projects that really are relevant to people working on different DAOs, thinking about participating in on-chain governance, and using or working for DAOs in, in different capacities. I think there's a lot of areas in crypto focused on tackling some of these core problems. And I'm super excited today to speak to someone that has thought deeply about these areas and is now working on a project that I think tackles it in a few different ways. So with that said, super excited to bring on Tina, the founder of Station. Larry and I have known Tina for a few years now, and she has consistently been one of the most active and and deepest thinkers, writers, designers working on DAO-related tooling and ideas generally. We have a lot to talk about today, and I'm really thrilled to bring her on. Without further ado, welcome, Tina. Thank you so much for having me. So to jump right into things, I think a lot of people in crypto that follow the DAO space and governance have are familiar with your writing, have seen a lot of your work, but they may not know the full story behind sort of your, your journey into Station, what inspired you to create it, and the broader vision. Are you able to really walk us through the journey that has inspired you to build it? Totally. I think that the beauty of the space is that everyone kind of came from very different perspectives, but kind of converge to this share vision of, you know, a new way of coordinating capital and human resources in a geographically agnostic and medium agnostic way. So initially, before starting Station, the two of you know, like I used to work in venture capital. And the reason why I wanted to, you know, practice the craft of venture is really because at some point I, I knew I wanted to be a founder. At some point in this broader, this is now a buzzword, but like the creator economy space, um, you know, for the very reason that what is the most inspiring about the internet and as the generation growing up in, on the internet is its ability to create kind of new economic opportunities for people, you know, long tail creators and people that have a variety of passions. And, you know, we've seen kind of the rise of platforms like Patreon, Twitch, and Substack and many others that are, you know, flipping the script on platform economy. So trying to kind of give more power to the creators and, and give them more direct way of monetizing rather than, you know, having most of the value accruing to the platform. So we already start to see that happening as an investor and kind of what I did as an investor was kind of doing deep research on some of these business models and how value can accrue to the creators, but kind of there's limitations of web two as a platform. And a lot of that comes down to in order to actually distribute, which is also the same in web three in many ways, like you still have to rely on Twitter and Instagrams of the world, but really kind of what can drive a lot of the value to the creators is basically being able to actually have ownership over the work that they produce and being able to have claim to that work so that in the future, if there's any secondary transactions, if there's any rights attribution or, or credit attribution, that value can continue to compound to the, to the creator itself. And some of the ways that kind of Web2 publishing works doesn't really lead 
to that interaction happening. So generally, this kind of you know creator very broadly applied, and like also applied to developers, designers, vice versa. So generally, people that make things on the internet and create some type of enterprise value from that thing, you know, diving deep into the crypto rabbit hole was when. NFT was still in its early innings when, you know, people in the art world actually started to put their art on chain. That was probably like the summer of 2019 or even earlier than that, like when kind of DeFi was on the rise and artists start to learn about these, some of these kind of crypto native primitives and super rare and a few other early players start to tackle the space in a way that's more literal, where they're just trying to put, you know, traditional art on-chain, and then create a marketplace to facilitate transactions. And then I think that's also when, you know, many tailwinds meet. So there's this creator economy that I just mentioned, you know, there's DeFi summer, and then there's now people coming together to try to do something like bidding on a piece of art on-chain. You know, that's when NFT became really popular and, you know, people that want to come together to buy those NFT become popular and PleaserDAO and a few others um, emerged um, during that time period. And looking at how rapidly these groups can form with a shared vision and mission and how transactions can be facilitated without a lot of these members knowing each other basically showcase a new primitives of organization. So I think just fell down the rabbit hole ever since and kind of studied closely of the history of DAOs, you know, ever since the 2017, the first like D-DAO exists um, till now and realized that there's real, something really, really special here in terms of not just a new way of coordination and all the stuff that internet has already been pretty good at, to be quite honest, but also another way of value attribution and credit attribution among a shared group of people in an actual digitally native way. Um, so people are like, oh, crypto is, you know, the, digi- the, the internet or digital native currency. And we kind of see DAOs as like the crypt- like kind of internet native organizational design for a lot of these bottoms up communities. So yeah, so that's kind of a long winded way into why we get fascinated by the DAO space. And kind of where station lies is, you know, across all these styles. One of the most fascinating primitive across these styles is their contributors. Because a lot of these people in the yearn and some other early DAO ecosystem, they're anonymous. And some of them are pseudonymous. And they're getting paid completely in digitally native currencies and sometimes communities native token, which at times represents either governance power or sometimes recently, right, some direct claim to how they can direct the treasury. So a lot of these new primitives feel, you know, start to look more and more like putting actual corporate governance on chain. And that's very, very fascinating. So, but that's super early. And if you look at how these people actually work and how they're organizing among themselves, and it's already an inside joke now that it's a pain to just, I think that there you tweet about it multiple times, where it's such a pain to just get people to sign the multi-sig. And that's kind of what DAO is all about. But because a lot of these interactions, honestly, it's not that enjoyable or delightful to interact with. So without these core infrastructure in place, we just realized there's so much missing pieces to actually allow people to participate and to contribute in the way that people now can fluidly work for companies. The reason why now remote work and all these other primitives that we take for granted are possible is because of the tools that exist and the infrastructure that exists that power these interactions. So if we actually want DAOs to exist, we need to build the tools and infrastructure and networks needed to facilitate these interactions, all the way from sourcing, curating talent to facilitating proposal process so that people know what 
the community's ideas are. Now they're being done on Discourse. Anyone in that space are familiar with the platform and Snapshot. Um, but if you know anyone who has operated a DAO, including you two, probably know that it's this pain in the ass to jump from KYC to Discourse to, to Gnosis and then losing track of you know a lot of things and things get lost in the mix. And in addition to that, right, without a unified kind of source of truth or any type of real data interoperability, which is ironic because Web3 is all about data interoperability. But right now, because of these platforms are all fragmented in different places, it's actually very difficult to just track, okay, Derek has done all these things across all these platforms. So without that source of truth, it's also very hard to actually reward retroactively or even proactively based on contribution history. And also, you know, from a more kind of Web3 potentials perspective where, you know, we all talk about how a lot of these technology is about individual data sovereignty, where someone, you know, should own their contribution history, they should own their work. That is not necessarily true, because if you write a proposal on Compound or Aave or whatever forum that's run on this course, for example, there's no actual relationship between kind of your account. People can verify in the future that this course account belongs to you, Derek or Larry, but, you know, it's actually not done in a very elegant way right now. So a lot of the kind of contribution history that you have is actually disconnected from the actual work itself. So all of the above basically kind of gives us the idea of just wanting to build all of these things in a modular way from scratch. Like we admire Aragon, we admire Colony and all of these leaders that have spearheaded DAO infrastructure, but people start to develop their own way of operating in DAOs that these traditional frameworks are slightly opinionated and monolithic in the way that they design their architecture that we see might not be the best fitted solution for how fast and how iterative and how modular some of these DAOs are being formed. So we can just start to think, kind of go back to the whiteboard and, and think about what people actually need. So now we're building a suite of tools that are highly modular so you can just adopt part of our tool without having to use the other parts to run some of your people operations. And that's really the area that we're focusing on. You know, there's Llama in the world that is building, you know, the treasury management side of things. And we're really building the people management side of things to make sure that, you know, contributors are getting paid. Contributors have a way to express their desires to contribute, can get funding, can, you know, get access to workspaces based on their role, vice versa. So, we hate to use the word HR in, in Web3, but we do believe that that layer is necessary to actually run any type of sophisticated operations on chain. That's an awesome journey that you just shared with us and totally resonate with a lot of it. You know, it just occurred to me that all three of us are former VCs who are now operators or founders in the DAO space. And I'm just curious, Tina, when you first told your peers, your peers in venture, hey, I'm going to start this DAO company. What are the sort of reactions you got? Because I, I can say from our, my experience when I was leaving VCG, people were really shocked. Uh, I was going from a really cushy venture gig to DAO operator. Really curious to get your sense for how that went. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I actually didn't connect the dots that we all came from that world. And I, I'm actually very curious to hear your why you jumped right into this space as well. These stories are always fascinating. So I feel like once you dig deep into the space, I just went on a little rabbit hole just now on how I went into the space. The opportunity is just very massive. I think that when, you know, Workday and Salesforce and the previous web, I guess, 1.5, 2.0 companies became 
in their early innings, they, they kind of also realized that database and kind of centralized databases are actually the solution to a lot of the problems of making sure an organization is being run efficiently and there's transparency in the financial planning process. And I think now as a VC who has invested across software and, and now looking at you know a lot of these converging trends, it's kind of becoming obvious that this at least directionally, feels like a new way that's much more effective than just traditional legal infrastructure to enable digitally native primitives around work and transactions. So I think that it became very obvious once you see it that this could be a massive opportunity. So that's one. And the other, I think, is also around caring about the future of the space where a lot of the ethos about Web3 is around, you know, decentralization, giving power to the people. And as a VC, you meet a lot of projects that don't necessarily prioritize those values, to be quite honest, and not to be overly ideological about it. But when you care so much about the future of the space and you meet projects that might not care as much as you do, I kind of had this instinct and was like, man, I care more about this than like, you know, the builders in the space Then I might as well go build. So that's how personally I made the transition. Yeah, I mean, I think from my end, speaking from experience, a lot of the skills and experiences from working in venture, I think also just do apply in terms of working for DAOs. Regardless of the, the type of product and, and services you're creating in the DAO space, you're usually doing it for not just other protocols or groups of people, you're really doing it for individuals. I can tell you that part of the work we do at Reverie is sometimes I do think of it as basically like a specialist value add investor, where it's we aren't just exposed to the project tokens, but we're also really hands-on in terms of what we actually do and contribute to projects. So I think in that way, it's a similar mentality because as you said, if you're building a DAO tool or any kind of offering, you really have to tailor it to the individual at the end of the day. And you have to really understand the user problem and participate in a few of these different DAOs across a variety of sectors. So I think I think it's been an interesting path for me personally. And yeah, it's just been yeah, it's been an interesting path. Just double clicking on that actually, Derek, since uh, we already have the ball rolling on the VC stuff. One observation I've had is, you know, a lot of founders who come to the DAO space and build DAO-related tooling who don't come from the venture or founder background, maybe they're kind of new to the industry, you know, for them, DAOs are just this sort of narrative and they don't really understand the pulse of the market, right? The people involved. Because at the end of the day, these are, you know, just communities or groups of people who are building stuff that lies in their head. You know, it starts as an idea and then eventually becomes productized. And if you don't come from that founder venture VC role, it's really hard to get that pulse for the market. And so your approach tends to be top down ra- rather than bottoms up. And having a background in being in the industry or being a VC and following the pulse of the market and understanding how these narratives and ideas form from a very bottoms up perspective could be a huge advantage. Totally. And I also feel like it might be, no, that's super interesting. And I also just to add on to that thing that when the market is super early, there's a lot of category creation that exists in the space where it's, and, and that's something that actually VCs are traditionally really good at. It's just like making a category out of nothing and then build a mental model and framework around thinking about a space and why it matters and kind of this narrative building and market creation 
skill set is very relevant right now, at least at this stage of the market. And one example is early stage YC when it just got started. And then there's a lot of companies, this this is running joke in the Valley where people are like, oh, all the YC graduates are each other's first $1 million AR contracts and kind of create the SaaS industry. And it goes after that as like consumer fintech and different categories, different, different hype cycle that category create a cohort of companies. So I definitely see that in DAOs right now. But I do think as the market matures, right now the great operators in DAOs, right? The treasury strategists, like the the community manager and vice versa, similar with how SaaS as a category, you know, matures is when, you know, someone who specializes in what they do in the company, you know, over time is able to streamline, productize their frameworks. I was actually very surprised when, you know, OKR became a SaaS category when a lot of companies literally all they do is kind of organizing OKRs across organization. And that's just an example of that where some operating practice becomes commoditized and productized. And I think that some of those businesses actually are very well run by just world-class operators and executors, which I think that VCs generally fall a little bit shorter on. So I think as DAO market matures, we can also expect like more operators to come out in the space and just execute very, very well as well. Tina, something we tend to talk a lot about when we meet in person is you sort of mentioned how market creation is a thing and VCs are really good at it. And I feel like, and this is what we do speak about, in the DAO space, this market for DAOs, there's a bunch of different competing sometimes ideas floating around for what DAOs are going to look like, how they're going to scale, what types of DAOs even exist. And that market creation narrative, we've not really coordinated on one narrative, how the broader crypto narrative kind of uh, coordinated on Web3, right? Very informally, of course, but that helps build momentum for the narrative since everyone has one vision for the future. How do you think about the DAO visions that exist today? Are you happy where the market has landed or do you think the best is yet to come? I think definitely the best is yet to come. And I also think that there are some dominant narratives that are really powerful. So I think that, you know, NFT summer and DeFi summer gave birth to a class of DAOs. A lot of them are collector DAOs that kind of come together to be a little bit more capital efficient by just pulling together capital to buy assets. And I think that is a product of when a market is in its bootstrapping phase, when, you know, there's a lot of liquidity flowing in that just are looking for some type of consolidation for deploying those capital and having like a professional kind of collector DAO, right? Like is, you know, a product, a byproduct of how much volume is flowing into the space and the rate of those volume flowing in. But in order to maintain the value of the assets that are being created, I think the other aspect of it is actually just general productivity and economic growth. Like countries and macroeconomic, there's this concept of, there's this formula of R is like the rate of return, annual rate of return of capital, and G is the actual economic growth. And income inequality occurs when R is meaningfully greater than G. And right now in crypto, it's definitely the case where the capital return is meaningfully greater than the actual economic output, which is, you know, actual productivity growth from the space. Besides, honestly, the killer case of store of value like Bitcoin or maybe some cross-border transactions like stablecoin, there's honestly not as much productivity increase enabled by the space. And the big bet that we are all making here is maybe there's a new type of corporations or a new type of corporate structure that can also enable more productivity growth. So the best is yet to come, definitely, 
if we think about it through this lens where this kind of coordination mechanism has not yet reached its full potential. And because of the potentially the lack of infrastructure as well as the lack of participation, because most people are still in the speculative phase of, you know, just deploying capital versus doing work. To change gears a little bit, one thing we talked about earlier is how there are many different types and classes of stakeholders within DAOs. You have the creators, you have the average contributor, and then you have token holders. And I think the needs are very different for each class. When you're thinking of what Station is working on, which stakeholder do you think you're sort of focused and building for? And sort of what is the target market within that? Is it like the internal HR and operations and and growth manager at the DAO? Is it sort of getting the messaging across to your average DAO contributor? How do you think about your end user specifically? I would say there's two stakeholders probably that are most important. One is the DAO operator. So people that are managing treasury, they're allocating resources that are making key decisions in the DAO because what we can enable is a lot of the value proposition of something like Carta, where you're able to see, you know, your cap table, basically like your token, token cap table, I guess, and basically where those tokens are going. And we believe that that's something that most DAO leaders And just anyone in the DAO actually would like to know. And the other stakeholder is obviously contributors. And we talk about this a lot is that there's so many DAO toolings building for admin. And we also have this type of admin point of view when we design our products. But really by the end of the day, what does the product look like? What does this piece of software look like without the admin view? Which is a very, very ambitious design challenge. Because if you think about any type of tooling and enterprise type tooling, an admin view is almost like the default. It's like there's always this manager type of view because of the way that corporations are designed. And then if we believe that there's going to be a increasing decentralized wave of self-governance, then we need to design so that everyone feels like they are an admin or based on their role, there's different privileges of their admin capability. So that's definitely something that we think about a lot and which ties to our second stakeholder, which is contributors. So you know, how can we actually make them feel like when they have these tokens, when they hold these tokens, when they hold this NFT, what power do they actually get? What's in there for them? And how can they actually tactically impact the community? And those are the questions that as an early stage startup employee would ask, this doesn't exist. And, you know, a lot of the projects we see now raise massive amount of funding without, they have a roadmap, but it's very much so abstract and there's nothing tactical yet, you know, after the initial fundraise, then, you know, what's so attractive about staying in this ecosystem after the initial capital mechanisms like staking dries out. I mean, actually, Kobe recently wrote a really good piece about just staking in general and, and saying that like, there's this meme um, that is like dev put staking on top of the leaking bucket and to solve all problems. But, you know, what happens after the volume of outflow kind of outweigh the staking as a mechanism. And we already see that with Olympus and a few other protocols already. So by the end of the day, if you're building a DAO, even a DAO project, the most important thing is still how you can retain people. And that's not, to be honest, that emphasized in the space right now. One observation we have at Reverie is just to simplify, this is a gross simplification, but there's generally two types of organizational scaling approaches DAOs use. One is the more traditional Silicon Valley approach of, hey, we're going to bring in a seasoned executive. So someone who's not essentially a product expert or a product visionary, but someone who knows how to scale the org. 
knowing how to have people report to each other, deciding which divisions to spin up, making sure everyone is aligned on vision and milestones, like very simple human stuff. A lot of product visionaries are just not good at it. And so the seasoned executive typically comes into like a series B stage company and scales the org. And some DAOs are scaling in that way, the more Silicon Valley, tried and true command and control playbook. And then the other style is much more flat, much more of a kind of like the original days of GitHub where employees have voice and really it is an unhierarchical structure. How do you think about which structure DAOs should use? Hey, if you're an NFT DAO, maybe you should be a flat hierarchy. Or if you're a DeFi product DAO, maybe you should have a hierarchical structure. You, you see so many DAOs, curious to get your take. Totally. This is a disappointing answer, but it might be a very midwit, like middle of the curve answer, which is it depends. I think it really depends on what the DAO is trying to achieve as a whole and how simple the action is. What you said, the simplicity is something that we think about a lot. You know, the simpler the DAO operations is, for example, an investment DAO, where the only thing, you know, this group of people comes together to do is make good investment. And then they don't care how you're going to find the source of deal, how you're going to make the decision. What matters might be like either the return or whether they're having fun investing together, whatever KPI they want to use. But it's pretty simple and straightforward. And usually those like they don't have to overcomplicate it and might not even need any tooling as long as they have some type of consensus mechanism in place to ensure that there's no single point of failure and Gnosis usually kind of achieve that goal and they can, can reach soft consensus just on the telegram. That's completely fine. But for something like some of these DeFi protocols that are, you know, trying to pass a how we test, you know, the core team cannot you know, participate in governance for the risk of centralization and they're spinning up kind of sub initiatives. And you both have been on the committee of grand style of large DeFi protocols. So we can, you might be able to speak to this more than I can here. But the more complex operations is, and there's like, you know, sub DAO, sub initiatives, and there's decision making across the org, then I think that's where tooling could help and more complex mechanisms can help because different orgs and different sub-orgs and different functional areas have very different way of making decision. A corporate M&A arm or a corporate investment arm of a like a Uniswap, let's say Uniswap VC DAO, might have a very different process than its product, product protocol DAO, where let's say community developers can decide on which feature to ship next. I think those two are honestly, completely different projects already. So is there a possibility to even have an overview of what everyone is doing in an org? Our hypothesis is that in order to have that, you still have to start from the bottoms up to support each individual subunit to an extent that they are accomplishing one thing at atomic value, like atomic level, and make sure that they can accomplish that thing very well. And our role is connecting those things together to provide a more holistic view of what everyone is doing. But yeah, it has to start on atomic level to ensure that the governance actually fits on what needs to get done in general. I could not agree more on the, the bespoke nature of this stuff. To my untrained eye, having read a few books and research papers on kind of organizational design and scaling, you know, it sort of comes off to, to again, the untrained eye as quasi pseudoscience. So you'll see a lot of examples like, hey, we applied org structure A to group of employees A, and it worked really well. And then as a result, the implication is, well, if you take the same org structure and that worked really well from group A and you apply it to group B, so different people, it should still work. And my suspicion is 
the people matter way more than the org structure. And a lot of great teams could succeed in spite of a really crappy and maybe dysfunctional org structure. And just because an org structure, like a flat org structure works for one group, it may actually not work for another group. And that group may actually benefit from hierarchy. And a lot of this stuff is really bespoke and just depends on the group of people. Totally. Even the big tech companies now, like Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, and the Fangs, they each have their own org structure very differently, but they're all widely successful in their own ways. So I would say it's probably similar with DAOs as well. But the difference is that we do believe in digital organizations and especially decentralized digital organizations. The ideal scenario is when people actually do have some type of participation power or influence over the future of the org, or else, you know, it might even be just more effective to just have a traditional org. So that's something that, to be honest, we're still contemplating. It's like, how important is this decentralization piece in all of this? So we spoke a lot about narratives earlier in the discussion, and I'm sure you've seen this narrative. So certain market participants connected with DAOs in general. And the narrative goes something like this. It's like, hey, the future of work is not going to be um, the history of work. So the idea is people, employees of, of DAOs and perhaps other companies 50 years from now, they'll be much more fluid. So instead of working for, I don't know, one company as a full-time employee and working only on tasks for that one entity, you can do project-based work at two, three, four, six companies in the future. And the idea is, Work can sort of be automatized or something along those lines where it's very project-based and an employee could work in parallel across many different organizations. And the inverse crowd would say, hey, no, you, you sort of need focus, right? It's really hard to context switch against more than one organization. And you really do have to, as an employee, focus on one project to really understand the full context of what you're working on. And there seems to be some debate about these two narratives. I'd love to get your take on what you feel is right for DAOs. Totally. I'm a big believer in hybrid approach, actually, which is the more common approach now in DAOs, where there's a focus core team that usually handles protocol development or whatever the core business is. If you know it's an investment DAO, there's a core team of potentially investors and a more distributed and also more bottoms up and part-time group of contributors that come in and out. And I think you're absolutely right. And we already see this in companies and, you know, the, the freelancer economy trend is not going anywhere. And we see the stats from Fiverr, Upwork, Deal, which is a global payroll company. And the global freelancer market is only growing larger. I think the last time I saw the stats, there's 1.1 billion freelancers around the world. And that's a pretty big number. And it just makes sense when you already know exactly what you're specialized in and you want to live a more flexible lifestyle. You want to be able to have the flexibility of working for a variety of different clients. And because of the rise of global remote work and the kind of technology and legal infrastructure, mostly kind of digitizing local employer of record. So companies like Papaya Global and Deal support the ability to have global payroll and benefits. I think all of that combined, right, leads to the ability for a more global and participatory workforce that's much more fluid. So this is all happening outside of the DAO world already. So what DAO really is, is that, you know, there's a more consideration of like, one is the means of 
value exchange. So rather than being paid in USD, there's more means to be paid in like a cryptocurrency, like the native token, for example, that usually represents some governance power, or just being paid in crypto, like ETH or or USDC, for example. And the other thing that is more around the governance side, which is like now the workers um, actually have some type of governance power over the organization. Versus if you are a worker from Upwork or Fiverr, you're basically like, just to be completely frank, it's like they're being treated as second-class citizen and even third-class citizens in the company. And what's happening in DAOs and some of these communities now is that there are mods of some of these largest protocols that are maybe from Indonesia, from other countries in developing economies, but they're still treated as a core member of the community. And I think this is much beyond just the economic impact and kind of the all the technology, technological impact, but more so just also around the way that we think about belonging, the way that we think about a new way of finding your third place on the internet. So there's also this cultural and almost like sociological aspect to it as well that I think really inspire us which is how can we give dignity to the people that whose identity have been abstracted away by traditional gig worker marketplaces, vice versa. Yeah, there does seem to be like a class divide and the for and against fluid working discussion where like if you're a CEO of a large multi-billion dollar company, you're kind of already like a fluid worker where you have a bunch of people reporting to you in various units within the organization. You're probably always looking for real estate. You're going to like various events, and your mind is constantly context switching. But if you're a more low-level employee, you're sort of expected to dedicate your all to the company. And it's funny how that works. Totally. Yeah, I think the most common part of yeah working for DAOs is what we're discussing, which is the fluid nature of it. But I think that really is just the tip of the spear. So just a question for both of you. Aside from fluid work, why should someone work for a DAO fundamentally? And I can just chime in with my initial thoughts. I think the timing and the scope of the work is just one aspect of it. I think when you're creating products and services for a DAO, regardless of your skill set, it also often just looks like something new entirely. If you think about the new types of use cases that DAOs are enabling, such as yeah, decentralized crowdfunding, autonomous DeFi protocols at scale, they might appear similar to traditional companies in terms of the end use case. But I think the actual things that they run on are obviously very, very different. So I think it's also just an opportunity to to rethink from first principles, like what to build and what to do for these customers. So it's, it's pretty neat from that perspective. I can't agree more. The, the real like innovation actually happen around how people are empowered to participate in decision-making governance and have more almost like sovereignty over, let's say, their shares of the network or or more flexibility about their work history and contribution history and leverage those kind of reputation that they accrue or leverage the status that they have within a organization for other things that they would like to accomplish outside of that, the bounds of that organization itself. So you put it very nicely just then. For me, and there's so many benefits of DAOs that we're still exploring. And I suspect 10 years from now, it'll be way more clear than it is today. But I can't help but think about the fact that really for the first time that I can think of, the concept of this item accruing a lot of value. And if you work really hard on a thing, you can help that item accrue value. And that item traditionally is typically 
thought of as equity. And in this case, you have this token and you can issue the token to, to people all over the world and basically incentivize them to work on the same thing, no matter what language they speak or where they are or what time zone. And that's pretty powerful because if you wanted to do that same thing as a startup founder and you're like, okay, well, I want a global workforce. Well, you'd have to issue equity to people from all over the world. And as any founder knows, that's really damn hard getting all of the agreements for um, papering equity grants. In, in some countries, you know, that's basically impossible because the courts and, and the lawyers, the local lawyers just don't know how to do that. And so to be able to issue tokens to anyone really quickly and have the dispute resolution mechanism be on chain, you know, we're still figuring out how to kind of build really powerful internet native dispute resolution mechanisms. But, you know, they're already sort of rudimentary solutions. But that's an aside. I think just the idea of issuing equity to anyone over the world through the blockchain is kind of cool. And it worked for Bitcoin. It worked for Ethereum. It's going to work for some DeFi DAOs. It's going to work for some NFT DAOs. It already is. And I think the best is really yet to come. It, this experiment has only started. And I think that one thing I want to add here is there's still so much innovation to be done about like how value accrues to the token. Like a lot of people in the space already talk about this, which is like it's like it's somewhat dangerous to compare equity and token like, you know, one to one because, you know, value accrual mechanism works very differently. And the way that even these protocols are being valued are, are very different. And I think a lot of times people now I think there's two approach. One is like kind of value them as more like public stocks where, you know, they care much more about the the technicals rather than the fundamental. And then there's also, of course, people that are quote unquote care about the value investing camp where they care about the quality of the project and how they generate revenue. And kind of both approach is kind of arriving at valuation very differently. And usually how the token's design also captures those value very differently. So I feel like now there's a lot of opportunity, as you said, to actually more closely tie the value of the protocol or the project to these tokens so that there's people actually have skin in the game. It's not just like a performative governance token that doesn't really give you that much governance power. And we're already seeing a lot of innovation in the space that's kind of moving towards that direction, which is very nice. Switching gears to a bit more tactical of a topic and, and just to riff on station a little bit, when you dream of what station could be, not in the next year or two, but really 5, 10, 15 years out, what's the thing that really gets you excited? It's like that meme, you know, the futuristic city. It's like if the devs did their job sort of thing. And there's just this funny picture of a futuristic city from 10,000 years in the future. What is that picture for you when you think of station, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ahead? Yeah, great question. I really do think that we have the opportunity to create the most collaborative and powerful governance tool that actually give voices to the people. So in the future, we want any contributor to come on station and know where they can add the most value. And when they do contribute and when they do propose ideas across the ecosystem, they know that they will be owning their work and they know that there's a guarantee that they will get compensated if their work is ever accepted. And then we can help them reach those kind of bridge, those trust and really build a trustless work marketplace for anybody who wants to contribute their skill set anywhere in the world. So like Sajan's vision from day one is like make meaningful work accessible for anyone, no matter where they are or who they are. And there's a lot in that sentence, which is like, you know, where they are, we want to be geographically agnostic, like you said, like 
kind of distributing equity across the world and also who you are, meaning that, you know, anons or if you have a real identity, we want to ensure that you have a work opportunity no matter who you are as a person and making sure that we can facilitate still trust in absence of identity as we understand it now, which is usually tied to government ID and, you know, the traditional infrastructure. I'm glad you brought identity up because I think that's like another potential differentiator for DAOs is, is this like concept that people speak about of, of on-chain identities. So I guess the inverse example would be how identity sort of works today where, you know, you're hiring someone and you're like, well, I want to know if this person is smart. And you'll look at their LinkedIn and they'll go to Harvard or just like some fancy high school, private high school. And you're like, okay, like they're not stupid, right? And then maybe you'll speak to their former boss and, and try to socialize with their former colleagues. Hey, is this person smart? And, and maybe do a work trial. And a lot of that is kind of experience of getting smart on someone's skill really resides with the person doing the work. And it, it doesn't really transfer to, to some sort of authority, right? Some sort of certificate authority that says, hey, this person is competent in X or Y or Z. But in DAOs, a lot of people are talking about, hey, we could sort of bring that on-chain identity or experience or call it what you will and, and create an NFT or some sort of badge for it. And that way, you'll know exactly how talented someone is in whatever thing they're experienced in. How do you think that stuff will play out? Identity is another rabbit hole that we could go down just you know, for another podcast. Honestly, it's such a big, hairy topic. But I think just like you said, to be honest, it's still too early to kind of even be talking about identity in a very deep way, because I feel like a lot of people are building really cool identity solutions, right? The DID, like decentralized identity solutions, like, you know, um, Ceramic, 3Box was working on that, and Spruce, which is tying some of these verified credentials to your Ethereum wallet. And then there's the verified credential itself. It's like, you know, more people are thinking about how do we become issuers of these verified credentials that tie to some wallet address to basically become a universal identifier of who you are. So all those primitives are in the talks and being designed right now. But, you know, the reality is that people have been talking about DID for such a long time, and then we don't really see any meaningful adoption. And if we look at kind of identity-like solution, they're not rigorous at all because identity needs to have a lot of the security mechanism in place. But just speaking of identity as like identifying you for who you are, NFT actually is one of the most adopted solutions. So it's kind of a curveball that now if you look at some of these gating protocols, Lib Protocol or Guild.xyz, like a lot of them gate access to a software or a, you know, any tech content behind a possession of an NFT or token, ERC-20. So that ended up becoming more of an NFT solution than kind of how people expected. But we see a future where there's going to be a marriage of both, where that NFT could either it's like, you know, the NFT could ended up becoming this container of some of these verified credentials and this data primitive. So you're, it's actually like a sophisticated membership card that has all holds all these data about you as a person. Or we see a world where potentially this DID will also have metadata around the verified credential being um, connected to the possession of an NFT, for example. So we kind of, we're not sure exactly, to be honest, where the future would go. And like back to the markets driven approach, we kind of just see what people use and what people like. And then so far, it seems like people resonate with NFTs much more than understanding how important it is to have data sovereignty over your Ethereum wallet. And that's just a little bit abstract for most people. I was doing some preparation for this podcast and going through the station experience. And first of all, I love the overall design inspiration and, and vibe and just the branding around sort of this is the place to really start your journey. My question is, 
how did you guys, it's clear that you guys are putting a lot of thought into the, the rollout and the partners that you're working with. I'd love if you could share a bit more color on just how you're thinking about it and, and how you selected these initial collaborators. Yeah, I think that different stage, we have different intentionality behind those rollouts. So really in the beginning, CCS and Forefront and um, Pool Suite that you saw, they were really good friends of Station, of the Station team even early on. So they're very generous of just being able to try our tools and see how everything works. But to be quite honest, we are very iterative. So in the traditional world, we are a startup that's iterating really quickly. So we also are building a lot of new functionalities based on these conversations and what partners want. So right now we're at the phase where we have very clear qualification of our partners. So we want partners that actually want to engage their members and contributors in decision-making process. We want partners or DAOs that have a treasury to deploy capital to allocate these resources to engage their members to use the funding to do things that will increase the value of the DAO in the future. So we start to have these more rigid or kind of evolving rigid as in like the more kind of written out and also evolving qualification of partners that we work with. And now we have, you know, a few very exciting partners in the pipeline for our next wave of feature set that we're super excited to share with the world. And, you know, a lot of that, you know, has something to do with identity that we just talked about and also some of the features that we're launching soon, which is the ability to sync with your like Discord roles and really bring a lot of the kind of uh, membership data that has been locked in a silo on chain. So bringing those data, sync them in, in, into station. And so that you can see a membership directory that's actually interoperable, like being able to actually create proposals. Um, so this is some alpha where we are designing basically a proposal product where, you know, because we have the richest membership data that we have more context around who's actually proposed, you know, how much funding they need and what guild or what work stream are they representing to have a much contextual and dynamic proposal product that also has execution of funding tie into that because we believe that even for station we want to use our own product to manage some of the fluid contributors that come in and out so those are some of the feature sets that we're launching soon and, and based on those feature sets we usually just find partners in a very need-based way where it's like oh does this solve this partner's problems we would usually wouldn't ask this question but i feel like tina since you were a vc it would be a really fun question to ask you there's obviously so many DAO onboarding tools at the moment. And you know, speaking from our experience as DAO operators, sometimes it's really hard to figure out, hey, which tool are we actually going to integrate with? And how do we even make that purchasing decision? Putting your former VC hat on for a second, how would you think about how the DAO onboarding provide, will, how that space will play out and how the customers will make those purchasing decisions over time? We believe that in the beginning, bit kind of there's this idea of bits and atoms and kind of solution that solves a very particular problem that is almost like atomic solution usually wins, where you don't need a sophisticated governance tool, vice versa. So snapshot works perfectly fine for that use case. But over time, as we see any industry matures, consolidation happens. And a lot of these tools, to be honest, right now that are live in Web3 feel more like a feature than a platform. So kind of how we see it is that we, we want to definitely become a platform where we 
both work well as a all-in-one solution, but also works very well modularly with other tools as well. And that's also the ethos of Web3, where a lot of the data that we will be publishing on chain um, to RWE for IPFS, you know, can very easily be indexed um, by other tools. So I think Snapshot actually is a is definitely an inspiration for us, where a lot of the proposals are stored on IPFS. So it's, you know, their API is super easy to interact with. So you want to achieve, you know, similar results just with some of the stuff that we're putting on chain so that, you know, other tools can find it helpful as well. But in general, we believe just as users, you know, you want a OS, like you want probably like a more integrated experience to do things so that you don't have to use like 50 tools to accomplish something very simple. So that's kind of the direction that we're heading towards. Awesome. Super interesting to hear is just how you think about the, the sequential rollout what's coming down the line and really what what people can look forward to. I think from chatting with you today, it's super clear that you think about DAOs in, in, in so many different ways and there's a lot of ways that Station can really improve the experience for, for end users. So yeah, I think with that said, we can wrap things up here. My last question is for any listeners listening to the podcast that are interested in in using or, or following Station, where should they go? Our Twitter is 0xStation and our website is station.express. There is a wait list. If you would like to try out the product, we would love to demo to you. And yeah, we're pretty easy to find. Well, really appreciate you taking the time, Tina, and looking forward to having you back on soon. Amazing. This has been a blast. Awesome. Thank you.